last book in your New Testament. Near to the end, verse, uh, chapter 19 today, reading verses 1 through 9. If you are just visiting with us, you are catching us in the last sermon in a series dealing with marriage and sexuality in the New Testament and in the Scriptures. Uh, and today we are taking a moment to look at the marriage of the Lamb as we find it. In Revelation chapter 19, you'll notice, though, that the marriage of the Lamb comes in a larger setting, a greater context uh, that has uh, a few elements that we wouldn't normally connect with the joy of a wedding celebration. You'll see that the wedding of the Lamb is announced with the fourth, the last of four, hallelujahs. The first three deal with God's judgment, and my, uh, my hope is that we will see something of how those two fit together, and we will learn what it is to rejoice in both the judgment of God and also the marriage of the Lamb today. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Before we read God's word, please join me again in a word of prayer. Gracious God and King, we pray that you would speak to your people through your word. You inspired your holy prophets to write these things for our instruction. Help us, Lord, to find grace and mercy at your throne. Before your word, lay us open by your living word, we pray. Help us that we might find Jesus Christ in these scriptures and finding him to believe in him and to have life by his name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, in a, a lamp-lit room in old Jerusalem, 13 men gathered around a table. They gathered to eat and to drink the promises of God. In typical fashion, they ate like men who were late for an appointment, so they reclined at the table with their sandals already tied for leaving. They dipped their morsels of bread into oil with their right hands because their left hands were grasping their walking sticks. 
It was an act of remembrance that was heavy with anticipation. Recall that 1,400 years before, thereabouts, their forefathers had eaten the first Passover while they were still slaves in bondage in Egypt. They ate that meal as slaves looking for freedom. They ate as sojourners who were waiting to return home. And now, as these men ate together in the upper room, Jesus prepared them to look forward all over again. So he tells them, Luke chapter 22, verses 15 and 16, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now typically we have come to call that the Last Supper. Jesus points out that it was really just the beginning. That long history of remembering the Exodus was now drawing to a close, and a future history of looking forward to the kingdom was just starting. You know, the way it happens, the, the today newly engaged couples send out a pre-invitation invitation to their wedding. Save the date, it says. And then there's that pretty little picture at the bottom where they're both nonchalantly standing, like they're always featuring that, uh, that wedding ring, so you can see it, the engagement ring. And you take that little card when you get it and you hang it on your refrigerator. You mark the date on your calendar. You make a mental note that there's something to look forward to when springtime rolls around. That's what the first supper was. It was a save the date for the marriage of the Lamb. Jesus was telling his people that there is something for them to look forward to. And he gave us his table. He gave us this table so that we would remember not to stop waiting, not to stop longing, not to stop anticipating the joy that will belong to Christ and to his people when his kingdom comes in fullness. Revelation chapter 19 is a preview of the joy that will fill creation when the kingdom of Christ comes on earth as it is in heaven. Today, I want to help you look forward to that day. Specifically, I want you to see that when the kingdom of Christ is fulfilled, God's people will rejoice in two things. We'll rejoice in the judgments of God, and we will rejoice in the marriage of Christ. The judgments of God and the marriage of Christ. We begin, verse 1, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power. Belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. You're probably aware. With Revelation chapter 19, we are jumping into what is most likely the most difficult uh, passage, the most difficult book in the Bible. And here in chapter 19, we're jumping in at potentially one of the most significant points of the story. The whole book is one extended heavenly vision concerning the future of the universe. It's made up of symbolism. It's made up of metaphor. More than anything, it's made up of language lifted from the Old Testament prophets and applied to the New Testament church. And particularly for that reason, for many New Testament Christians, much of what we find in Revelation sounds unfamiliar. Take this issue of God's judgment, perhaps. When we think of God's judgment, we probably never connect it to the idea of hallelujah. 
We don't think of God's judgment and rejoicing in the same categories. To us, judgment is something negative. Judgment is something to be avoided. Isn't that the essence of the gospel, after all? That God, in his grace, allows believers to escape the judgment that is due to us for sin. He does it by laying his righteous judgments on Jesus Christ as our our substitute and our Savior and calling us to faith in him so that he would take the judgment that we deserve so that we would receive the righteousness that is only his. And that's a good way to think about judgment. That's a right way to think about judgment. That God's judgment is his wrath against sin. It's something we need to be saved from. We hardly ever think about it as something we rejoice in. Now, when we're thinking of judgment in that way, we're most often thinking of judgment on an individual level. Revelation chapter 19 holds out God's judgment concerning powers, we might call them. Concerning systems. Concerning an evil world order arrayed against the kingdom of God and the saints of Jesus. You notice verse 2. It says that God's judgment comes against this great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality. And that is symbolic language. John is not describing some individual, namely female, enemy of the kingdom of God who disturbs God's people. This means we, we can't possibly unpack all of this. And so it means that, uh, that today this is a sermon that comes with a homework assignment. The language of the great prostitute refers back to an image that was first brought up in Revelation chapter 17. Your assignment is to go back and read chapter 17, 18, and 19 and to see what we have defined there. But in Revelation chapter 17, verse 4, it speaks of a woman. It says, The woman who was arrayed in purple and scarlet, she was adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead, says uh, verse 5, is a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Finally, verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. All this is disturbing. It's strange if you're unaccustomed to revelation. But it's an acknowledgement, I think, at the very least, that God's people live in the world, in this fallen world, in the midst of a hostile environment that would love nothing more than to suffocate their faith and to squeeze out their salvation if it could. If the world hates you, said Jesus, know that it hated me first. And that's what John has in mind here when he writes Uh, about this prostitute, he has in mind what the Bible sometimes simply calls the world. Not merely an individual unbeliever, but the unbelieving world system. When you go back and you do your homework today, you're going to find that at various stages in chapters 17 and 18, we find different language applied to this prostitute. At one point, she's called Babylon, which is emblematic of that great ancient enemy of God's people, the first enemy to come in and destroy the temple, just like Rome would come in and destroy it in 70 AD. By the way, she's also called the woman who sits on seven hills, which is a representation of Rome. Rome is often depicted as an elegant lady, the goddess Roma, reclining on the seven hills of Italy where Rome itself sat. 
At other places, you'll find that it's described in ways that the Old Testament talks about places like Tyre, or Sidon, or Edom, or Moab. At each turn throughout the text, she seems to be identified with all of these ancient earthly enemies of God's people, all rolled into one worldwide conglomerate of anti-God oppression. And when you take them all together, I think that's the best likely explanation of who this prostitute is. She is not merely one powerful persecutor, but she's all of them. She's not just one demonic world empire, but she's each of them aligned in succession and symbolism. In John's first letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he says that we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the prostitute of Revelation is the embodiment of that evil power. She is what some commentators that I read this week, she is what we might call a political and religious and economic system corrupted by human sin. She is a whole kingdom at odds with the glorious salvation that God has in store for his people. I think that is precisely why this sounds so foreign to many of us in our 21st century context. That's because particularly in the West in the 21st century, we have told ourselves that the political, religious, economic system, well, that's something that we can find a way to align with the power of the church. That's something we can co-opt for our benefit, isn't it? And so we've hung our hats and our hopes on so-called Judeo-Christian values that we think will help us to get ahead in the world. We have imagined that the law of God written on the hearts of all men would somehow give us a pass in the public sphere. That they'd somehow make Christians seem normal. They'd make the gospel seem attractive to those who don't believe it yet. And you and your children are increasingly finding out that that is simply not true. Don't get me wrong, folks. I'm not some doomsday prophet. I'm not lamenting the loss of some once great cultural Christianity. But I will say that as the remaining nominal belief in the West slowly evaporates, we are finding that it's leaving behind a cultural setting that looks more and more like the setting of the first century church. What is increasingly being called a post-Christian society is looking more and more like the pre-Christian society. The church in our day is very slowly returning to its roots. Back to the time when Christian values and norms meant that you were in the minority full stop. And if you were uncomfortable with that, if that's the kind of reality that scandalizes your faith, then maybe you need to spend more time reading the scriptures and less time watching the news. Maybe we have forgotten, dear church, the New Testament was written to a very small group of people who were very insignificant in the eyes of the world. Maybe we have forgotten that the New Testament proclaims a gospel message that we are told at the start, unbelievers will be predisposed not to receive. Maybe we've forgotten that in many places around the world today, the church is still languishing under systematic oppression and institutionalized violence. Maybe we've forgotten that she's still crying out with the saints of Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
This morning we prayed for our brothers and sisters who are languishing under the watchful eye of the Taliban. Maybe you also saw the news story this week on this past Wednesday, a mob in Pakistan, in Islamabad, burned eight churches and more than a dozen Christian homes because someone had accused someone in that community of defacing a copy of the Quran. That's just one among many. Stories that we hear. And when we hear such stories, it ought to produce at least three responses. First, we should pray for their faith. We should pray for the safety of our brothers and sisters who were affected and targeted. Secondly, we should admit that this is precisely what Jesus told we would face in this fallen world. Thirdly, we should wait and look forward to the day when the glory of God's salvation will be seen in the coming of his judgments. So John says there's a day coming in the future when this present world order will pass away. There's a day coming when the powers and the systems of this dark and sinful world will be done away with. So John in his vision records this this voice of a heavenly multitude praising God. Not just praising him for his judgment against the prostitute, though that is there, but his judgment on behalf of his treasured people. In fact, that is exactly what this voice is doing. It's responding to the Lord who called them to do this. Take a look back in chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, that's the prostitute. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So verse 2 says, hallelujah, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of his servants. Revelation chapter 6 will one day be answered. The saints cried out, how long? And John responds, the day's coming. It's an indication that God's judgment is a feature of discriminating love. It's not a concept that's foreign in our day. And that God's love is, is undiscriminating. It goes out to the farthest reaches of the earth. It covers everyone in all times, in all places, in every single way. Everyone is enfolded into the love of God, and God is showing us, no, His love is discriminating. He has a bride that He chooses for Himself, that He loves, in a way that He does not love others. showing us that this is part of his protective grace to deliver his people out of injustice. It's part of the reason that this image of the prostitute is used, even though it might be shocking to us on a Sunday morning. If you go back and you look at the language of of the wisdom literature, Proverbs, that we just finished reading through our services, uh, if you go back to chapters 5 and 6 and and 7 and 8, the prostitute is a wily woman. She's not, as we often think today, and it's, it's certainly true, I don't mean to, to denigrate this idea, but the prostitute uh, in the wisdom literature is not a victim of trafficking. She's not some innocent bystander. She's the one who stands on the street corner waiting for the unsuspecting to come by so that she can take advantage of him. She's opportunistic. She's a stranger lurking. She is a temptress, enticing. She is the forbidden fruit, hoping to be eaten only if she can choke the throat of the person who swallows her. 
And by passing judgment on her sins, the Lord is declaring that he will deliver his people from the grip of her enchantments. Let's take a step back from the world of symbolism and metaphor, shall we? When the kingdom comes in its fullness, when Christ avenges the blood of his people, what do you think that will look like? What will be the signs that this is happening? Well, it will be on the last day before the judgment of God. That will be the first sign. Nobody will be wondering if this is the day. We won't be saying, oh, is this it? But what will happen when he does that? What will it look like? Well, it will mean that he will expose and eliminate the wickedness of things like kidnapping Christian girls in Nigeria just to have them forcibly marry Muslim men. When the kingdom comes in its fullness and Christ avenges the blood of his saints, it means that he will hold accountable all of those previously unaccountable people of this world. All the kings and the czars and the emperors and uh, and the leaders. Every mighty man who crushed the least of God's people in their grasp for power. When Christ avenges the blood of his servants, it will mean that he will condemn all those wolves in sheep's clothing. Those so-called pastors who stand and preach nice-sounding sermons in public and then intimidate and abuse children when nobody's looking. When God avenges his saints, it will look like justice. And justice that we've all been longing for and waiting for. Justice that the unbelieving world says, you know, you never really get in this life. Somebody takes advantage of you, that's it. When you die, it's done, it's gone. There's no one to hold anybody into account. That's not what the scripture tells us. When God avenges his saints, he will deliver them from every earthly power that hates them, from every human sin that means them harm. Derek Thomas writes this. He says, It is an indication of how far removed we are from the biblical testimony of the character of God that we so often recoil in horror at the graphic portrayals of God's wrath, but heavenly saints see things differently. So once more they cry out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And one day so shall we. When the kingdom of Christ comes in fullness, those who love him will join in their rejoicing. They will know the relief that comes with the judgments of God. We will find it as something worth singing hallelujah over. And so God's people will praise him on that day for the judgments of God. We'll also praise him for the marriage of Christ. Now beginning in verse 6, we see a shift Uh, in the song of of this heavenly multitude that I think can only be described as something like a key change. Like the roar of many waters, says John, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. It's like the moment when when the choir takes uh, a step back and they take that deep breath to get ready and the music lifts from an E to an F sharp. And suddenly the brass comes in loud and strong and the whole symphony hall sounds like it's shaking. And then all the people of God cry out with one loud voice, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And in case you didn't notice it, that's Old Testament language too. Outside of the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, the name Almighty is applied to God only once, just a single time 
And when it does, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament idea of God through and through. Not that, that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Not as though his character fundamentally changes when you pass from Malachi into Matthew. That's not what I'm saying. So perhaps you can understand that when the incarnation of Jesus Christ has happened, how the Holy Spirit would inspire the apostles and the prophets to zero in on this wonderful miracle of what it means for God to come near to where we are. That relationship, his nearness to us, the theological term for it, is his imminence. Sounds like Emmanuel, which means God with us, and God's imminence is his with usness. The fact that he comes close to be where we are, to share space and history and suffering with us. And, and through and through the New Testament, we see that it's concerned with making sure that we get the depth and the richness of that imminence of Jesus Christ, who is God with us. But God Almighty, God Almighty, he's the God in the heavens. The Greek word is Pantocrator. This is a great Greek word if you want to impress your friends. I learned a new one today. Pantocrator. It means the one who holds all things in his hands. God Almighty is the God who cannot be challenged, who shall not be questioned. He's the God of Job over and over and over and over again. It appears there more than anywhere else in the Old Testament. God Almighty. It also shows up in the beginning of Ruth. Because when Naomi returns from the land of Moab and she's widowed and she's childless, she says, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. What's she saying? She's saying, God has done this and no one can overturn it. God Almighty is the God and the Creator who cannot be challenged. He is, moreover, the one that the prophets depended upon to be above and unaffected by the shifting sands of human existence. And when we understand that, it also helps us to see just how earth-shattering it is when the song of rejoicing continues in verse 7. Hallelujah, they shout, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The subtext is that he's, his kingdom is unassailable. His rule is beyond all question. His judgments have been passed, and no one can reverse them. The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Then, verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. You see what's happening there. In a single verse, in the span of a solitary hallelujah, the heavenly realm of God Almighty and the earthly closeness of Emmanuel are brought together and joined and bound forever, never to be separated ever again. As Revelation tells us, the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. When heaven and earth meet together, and Jesus told us that one day that is precisely what would happen. You remember that same night in the upper room with his disciples, after they celebrated the Passover together, Jesus made a promise to his men, his friends. He told them, John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, 
In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Notice he prepares a place. He doesn't take them to that place, does he? I go and prepare a place for you, and I come and I take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In the Jewish culture of the first century, a wedding always took place in two stages. You're aware that there was first the betrothal, like Mary and Joseph, who were betrothed, but not together yet. Yet in those days, the betrothal was the moment that you were declared publicly to be bound together, husband and wife. You were uh, considered married in the eyes of your community, and only a divorce could break the betrothal. And yet, like Mary and Joseph, they didn't come together, they didn't live together, because the betrothal was a time of preparation. During the betrothal, the husband would go away and prepare a home. He would get ready and, and set his affairs in order to welcome his new bride into his life. And that preparation time could be long, it could be short, depending on the family, the preparations that had to be made. But then on that joyful night, on the, on the night of the wedding ceremony, this long procession would usually begin at the house of the groom. It would begin after sundown. They'd travel by torchlight, and they'd go like a, a festival celebration to the house, the family home of his bride. And there the husband would receive his wife and the whole community would escort them back to the place he had prepared to join their lives together. And then the festivities began. This feast for the entire neighborhood that would last as long as the family could afford it, sometimes up to a whole week, seven days. And it marked the joy of their union because now they will be together forever. Do you see that in Revelation? You see what's happening here. This heavenly host is revealing to us that when the kingdom of God will have come in its fullness, when the Lord of heaven will have passed judgment on everything immoral and everything unclean, then the Lord Almighty will rule and reign without rival. And then the noise of all of our spiritual warfare and all of our indwelling sin will be silenced. And then all the preparations will be complete. And then the time of waiting will be over. And then creation will rejoice when the bridegroom comes to take his church to himself forever. Take a look at the opening of Revelation chapter 21. We see it all over again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In the heavenly realm of God Almighty and the earthly closeness of Jesus Emmanuel, are joined together forever at the marriage of the Lamb. And what God has joined together, no one can separate. That's what Revelation is telling us. In language that we've been studying all summer long, 
A union so close that they are able to share one another. It's symbolic, it's metaphorical. You understand where it's going. This complete sharing of our lives with Christ and Him sharing His life with us forever. Just because it's symbolic doesn't mean it's not real. Just because it's symbolic doesn't mean that it's a myth. It's a nice little story that we tell ourselves when we lay our heads to bed at night and we wonder, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And we tuck our children in, we pat them on the heads, and we tell them what we know isn't true. That's not what I mean by saying it's symbolic and metaphorical. I mean that it's greater than we can imagine, and this is the closest thing we can get to try and describe it. That's what I mean. And it's real. It's worth noting also that while the lamb is preparing a place for his bride, he's also preparing the bride for himself. There's contrast here. You'll see it in your homework. There's a contrast between this, uh, this prostitute who is, who is dressed in, in a gaudy way, dressed in, in scarlet and in purple, while the bride of the lamb is adorned in fine linen, bright and pure. The text goes on to tell us in verse 9 that that fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The symbolism there is plain enough. It's a reminder that the Lord delights in the faithfulness of his people. He loves when the church of Christ reaches forward in faith to do the things he calls her to, to stand fast when the world assails her, to stand fast in the face of persecution uh, and those calls to reject the Lord who has saved you. Turn away. Nobody will know. Uh, Ignore your faith and say that it doesn't matter to go along with those around you. And yet God's people are firm and steadfast, not shaken from the rock of Christ upon which their faith is standing. God the Father loves that. It gives him delight. And Christ our Savior loves that. And it gives him delight to know that his bride is faithful. And so when the church of Christ stands before her groom on the great day of that eternal wedding, she will be spotlessly clean. She will be perfectly pleasing. She will be completely prepared with not a single stitch out of place. And that's easy to understand, but what is striking is the puzzle between verses 7 and 8. Because we're told on the one hand that, that the bride has made herself ready. We're told on the other hand that the linen garment was a gift that's given to her by the hand of someone else. That's the way that the Lord clothes his bride, isn't it? Here's how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's why so consistently through the book of Revelation, John calls Jesus the Lamb. It takes us all the way back to chapter 5 if you want more homework. It's a reminder that he's the one who has paid the price to purify his bride. And she doesn't purify herself all all by her own efforts. Rather, through the gift of himself, Christ the Lamb has covered our filthy garments with the robes of his own righteousness. 
It's a reminder that even the good works that he so delights in are merely a gift that he gives us to bring glory to himself. I don't think it's a coincidence when you open the beginning chapters of your Bible that we find God of creation establishing the first marriage in a garden paradise. That's the beginning of the whole story, isn't it? God makes a place and he makes a couple and he puts them there and he gives them something to do and he gives them one another. He made them male and female and he joins them together and he gives them this call to multiply and to tend and to work and to subdue, to have dominion. And so they did. And innumerable others came after them. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And it happened over and over again. And marriage filled the earth like the waters cover the seas. And you know what happened in many. In in many of those marriages, they became shipwrecked by sin. All of them, in, in some way or another, have been twisted to some degree. Nevertheless, the goodness of that first marriage set that secret agenda that's still hidden behind every single one that would come after. As Paul said that the mystery of these things, the whole affair was meant to be a signpost pointing past itself, reminding us that there is a greater marriage to come. And so it is when we come to the closing chapters of Scripture. In the close of the Bible story, we find a greater couple in a more perfect paradise, gathered together in perfect communion. In the final chapters, we find the true union worth looking forward to. The marriage of which all other marriages have been poor representations. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so blessed indeed, we might say with the angel. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I hope you understand that that's a benediction that becomes the invitation that it it blesses. As it speaks that blessing to you, it's inviting you to come. In just a moment, we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table of the Lord that he gave us, that we would remember these things, that we should look forward to these things. That table is a foretaste. But the invitation goes out to all who will hear. If you're not already joined as a part of his bride, repent and believe today. You can be. You can find blessing. You can rejoice that his judgments are poured upon Christ and not upon you. That he calls you to himself and makes you his own. If you don't yet know that blessing, I urge you to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and look forward with the rest of us to the work that he will do when we see the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Father, we pray that as we come, you would give us grace to receive and believe your word. Help us, Father, to know your judgments, holy and true, your judgments on behalf of your people. 
to release us from the grip of our sin, to call us to yourself. Help us, Father, to find fellowship with yourself. Help us to grow in faithfulness and to continue looking forward to that day when we will be with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In many ways, there's not much left to be said at the table today. This has been one extended table sermon. But we find as we come to this table that it's set before us with tangible signs and symbols. That's God's grace and mercy to us. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're frail. He knows that we are earthbound. And so he gives us earthbound symbols that we can taste and touch and smell and consume to remind us that just as our bodies need to be sustained with food, so also our souls are sustained by Christ Jesus. He is the life giver. He's the one who restores our soul, who gives us fellowship with himself. If you have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith and repentance today, this table is for you. And all the promises that it proclaims are yours. They have been sealed. This is the true word of God. That if you are in Christ Jesus, you have fellowship with him. And you always will. And so come to the table and eat and drink as the elements are distributed. Remember the Lord who gave himself for you to draw you as his bride into fellowship with himself. If you've not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, Allow the elements to pass, but consider if the Lord is also calling you to faith in his name. He too can give you fellowship with himself. He can draw you to himself with cords of love, as Isaiah tells us, that we would know him and be his and belong to him. We read in uh, the word of Mark's gospel that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our gracious God, we thank you for this table set before us. Would you draw us to yourself here? Would you give us faith and repentance? Would you give us life and forgiveness and peace in Jesus Christ, our Lord? Help us to come rejoicing and believing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to them, and he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples saying this cup is my blood of the new covenant it's given for many for the remission of sins take and drink all of you Christ said, this cup is my blood, new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this table set before us by his body and blood. Help us, O Lord, to trust and rejoice in him. Until that day when we eat and drink together with you in the kingdom of God, we pray. Amen.